All right, so we are in 2 Kings. I'm going to say chapter 17, but we're all over the place this morning. Um, if you'd like notes, there's some in the back. They're not fancy fill-in-the-blank notes. If you're used to that, they're just literally the same thing I'm looking at. So it's up to you. If you like spoilers, you can read ahead in the notes. I see, I see how some of y'all do. Flipping ahead. How long is this sermon going to be? How many pages is it? You don't even know. You don't even know how long it's going to be. Just buckle up and get, come along for the ride. All right? So um, a couple of things about this section. We're kind of coming into the final stages of Second Kings. Uh, we'll finish up within the next couple of weeks. And this section can be confusing because, well, for two reasons. One, the names... I'm, with all apologies to ancient Near East followers of Yahweh, the names are ridiculously confusing. I mean, the, sometimes it's difference between, of a, between a, just one letter between two different people. And that's confusing, so you have that problem, but also you have the, pro, the confusing problem of these two storylines uh, with Judah to the north, and Israel to the south. Remember, they divide, they split a long time ago in our story. And, and you have them overlapping each other. And sometimes you're talking about a king in Israel, and sometimes a king in Judah, and it gets, if you miss that little detail, and sometimes it's buried in the way it's written, you get really confused, and you're like, wait a minute, like, where are we? What are we doing? What are we talking about? And so what I'm going to do to help with that is I'm going to split the two storylines. Okay, and so this morning we're going to follow Israel's story up until the end, just by itself, and so it'll take us from here close to the end of the book, and then the next two weeks will be Judah's story, okay? Judah takes longer to get to go into exile because they have a minute there where they rally, and it seems like it's going to be great, and then of course, wah, wah, wah utter disappointment yet again okay so we'll we'll enjoy that for a couple of well we will enjoy winning for one week and then (laughs) then we'll lose again all right but this week it'll be israel's story so if you're reading along in second kings and it seems like i'm jumping around i am a little bit i'm just letting these two storylines diverge um just for the sake of not confusing you okay and myself all right so that's what's going on with that so this is the story of how Israel finally goes into exile, okay? So um, there's a series of kings after last week we talked about Jehu, who was a mixed bag, but he did a lot of really good things, things we've been wanting to happen for a long time, primarily being uh, eradicating Baal worship from the, the nation, number one. We see all the prophets of Baal meet their wonderful demise and their temple turned into a latrine. That was a great part of the story. Um, Jezebel's gone. Ahab is gone. Um, Ahab's descendants are gone. So that problem is solved. But Jehu's also a mass murderer. So I don't know what to tell you about him. All right? He's a mixed bag in a lot of extremes, a mix of extremes. And so after him, we have a series of kings. And if you read through Second Kings, it reads a lot like just a, just a list of one after another, and there's a repeated phrase, and I'm going to, and it hammers away at you, like like just a big signal flare of this is the point, 
okay? And we're going to look at those scriptures very quickly. It's a lot of scriptures, but well, they're short, okay? We'll go through them fast. So first we have Jehoahaz, king in, you see him in chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. He reigned 16 years. 2 Kings 13, 11 says, He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Just like, seems like every other king. Then Elisha dies of an illness in that section, so Elisha, the, the prophet, is now gone. Then we have Jeroboam 2, in 14, 23 to 29, he reigned 41 years, a good long run. 2 Kings 14, 24 says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Sound familiar yet? Zechariah reigned six months. Believe it or not, that was not the shortest one. We'll get to that in a minute. 2 Kings 15, 9. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Then Shalom reigned one month. And he's murdered by Menahem. That's a fun story you can read. You don't get a lot of details. First Chronicles has more. No assessment is given by the author of Shalom, probably because he wasn't there long enough to be bothered with. But I think we can assume had he reigned longer, he would have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord like his father Jeroboam, on and on and on, etc., etc., right? Menahem, who staged the coup, murdered the king, became king himself after one month. Verse 18, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pekahiah, or Pekahiah, reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pekah reigned 20 years. Pekah leads Israel into a war with Assyria and tried to force Judah to help, started a little war between Israel and Judah. Judah then asked Assyria, the enemy, to help. So that's fun. I mean, that's, that's a movie right there. Israel goes to pick the fight with Assyria, can't beat them, tries to force Judah to help them. Judah says, no, I'm going to talk to Assyria. And they talk to Assyria and it creates a huge massacre. Judah asked Assyria for help, which resulted in Assyria entering the land, ravaging the north of Israel, leaving Pekah with no political power. And this leads to the assassination by Hosea, who is our next king. But before we go on to Hosea, what's the assessment? Fifth, chapter 15, verse 28, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Hosea reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were, who were before him. Whoa, that's quite an endorsement. <laughs> he wasn't quite as bad. He was evil, just slightly less evil than everybody that came before him. During Hosea's reign, Assyria made yet another deal with Israel. This was one of Israel's tactics, was to pay off, to steal money out of the temple, the real temple, Yahweh's temple, 
steal stuff out of it, use that to pay off their enemies to assuage them for a little while. He paid to appease them for a time, but did not keep up his end of the bargain, which was a mistake. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, invaded Israel and took King Hoshea captive to put him in prison. Took the king of Israel captive, snuck in, stole him, put him in prison. Then Assyria besieged Samaria for three years, eventually taking it. It's assumed that all of Israel at this point is effectively conquered. Israel ceases to exist as a nation at this point. They are just completely conquered. Their king is now alive but in prison. Every single one of them have been condemned as evil and wicked in the sight of God. The the Assyrians then carry the Israelites away, dispersing them throughout Assyrian territory. Didn't kill them all, killed a lot of them, but took them captive and just put them in cities all over Assyria. Later, we would see Assyria settle the now empty Samaria. So imagine Samaria. We've been talking about these people for weeks. All the homes are empty, just left however they were taken. All their stuff there, they're just snatched away. And it's empty. And to keep people from moving back in and starting a rebellion, Assyria takes refugees that they've stolen from other places in their conquering and say, here, now you live here. You live in this guy's house that we stole. So now it's occupied. These resettled people occupying Samaria initially asked for priests, which is an interesting part of the story, to come and teach them how to worship Yahweh. Assyria allows this to happen. It works for just a minute. Just a minute. And then they start doing the same stuff. Bringing in false gods, their their gods from their parents and neighbors and friends and their history and they combine them all together into this weird syncretistic religion that resembles Judaism to some degree but also doesn't. This is why in Jesus' day the Samaritans were hated because they represented a one, a leftover thing going back to the exile but also a mixed syncretistic religion that had some things right, but most things wrong. So what's the author's assessment of all of these failed kings? He says this in chapter 17, 1 through 18. We'll read a section of it. What went wrong with Israel? Verse 14, he says, But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant, that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. I love that statement. They went after false idols and they themselves became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So it got so bad 
their worship of false gods, they were actually sacrificing their children. These are God's people. By the time of Israel's exile, it had been over 200 years of idolatry and rebellion since God had commanded them to stop or he would send them into exile. You probably don't remember this. Back in 1 Kings chapter 14, the prophet Ahijah told Jeroboam's wife, if Israel does not stop its idolatry, God will send them into exile to its enemies. 200 years God waited and watched. King after king after king. And every single one of them, the people followed. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, hey, it's not going to go well. You need to stop. This Baal thing is bad. This idol worship thing is bad. Worship God alone. And they would, every single one of them, they rejected for 200 years. God is very, very patient. But his patience doesn't last forever. The repetition of the words, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, I think is a strong, unmissable clue as to the theme in the author's mind of what was wrong here. Israel's leadership was utterly, irretrievably failed. And the people of Israel have followed their kings in their folly. That's the other part of this. As they could have at any point said, no, we're not doing it. Instead, they deferred their judgment over to the king and said, we'll just do whatever you say. Sure, we'll worship that. We'll bow down to that God or that God. We began 1 Kings with a promise. Remember, a king would come from David that would establish his kingdom forever. Since that promise, we have seen almost nothing but king after king that fails to remind faithful, remain faithful to God in even the most basic ways. The, we, we laugh when we see, oh, he wasn't as evil as those who came before him. But this is the situation. Every single one. This is not just Israel's story. It's a story of every people across time. So don't get on a high horse. Humans have a terrible tendency to turn leaders and loved ones into functional messiahs. What I mean by that is we would never say there's another messiah because we're good Christians and we know better. But functionally, we are constantly tempted to treat other people like a messiah who will save us from some problem. One of the interesting things, if you read history about idol, false god worship in Israel, is that it was a very, often a very pragmatic thing. There was not this kind of enraptured devotion and belief in this god of just like, I'm so devoted to, 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 to Baal or this other god that I just have to follow him. That was rare. More often than that, it was a pragmatic thing of I'm worried that my crops aren't going to come in the way I need them to come in so I can feed my family. So I'm going to, and I've, I've been told by, I see my neighbors, my pagan neighbors worshiping this God of rain and thunder, Baal. And their crops seem to grow. And so why not? I'll leave a little sacrifice for Baal. I'll do a little of this. I'll dabble. I'll put one foot in that side 
of the river and it'll be fine. I'll still worship Yahweh. I still really believe in Yahweh, but you know, I, I need to feed my family. And so I'll just dabble in this and then I want to have kids and I haven't had kids. And I've got a neighbor who worships, worships a fertility goddess. Maybe, and she's had a bunch of kids. Maybe, what would it hurt to just bow down and worship that goddess? Maybe I'll have a kid. Right? And so it's a very pragmatic, practical thing. It's quite often, as far as we can tell, not this kind of like, oh, I just believe. It's fear and it's practical. I think we're equally tempted by false saviors ourselves. Maybe I'm the only one and I'm just confessing it this morning, but I think we turn to parents, spouses, friends, church leaders, celebrities, political leaders. We turn them into functional messiahs. We would never call them messiahs, but they function that way in our lives. For us, it may not look like religious devotion. We reserve that for God. A belief in God, but I lean on other gods. So I want to give you five examples, depending on how much time we have. I think we could do more. Hopefully one of these will land on you, or at least make you think of something that's close to it where you depend on someone for things that you should depend on God for. So first we have spouses. You know, I've talked to many, many guys over the years who have told me that they went into their marriage thinking that their wife was going to solve their lust problem. And then they found out that it didn't work that way. And that their lust didn't go away and their wife was really mad at them or confused by their expectations. And he said, wait a minute. Maybe I should go to God with this problem. I've also talked to many women over the years that expected their husbands to make them feel fully known and accepted inside. Only to find out that no matter how well attentive their husbands were, to their needs, they still felt an ache of emptiness inside that only God could fill. There are a thousand ways a husband or wife can demand of their spouse what only God can provide. If you're married, you know exactly what that's like. It's also really possible for single people to think that marriage will make them feel whole again or for the first time. That they will finally be completed when they meet the right person. And then they get married and they find out that they're not completed by this other person. And in some ways, this other person just irritates them more and makes them feel their need more acutely. It's the same problem. So stop worshiping your spouse with your unreasonable expectations. And let God be God and your spouse be human. No man or woman is completed by anyone but Christ, ever. What about parents? It's often said that we see God through the lens of our parents. I think that's often true. 
very common. However, this is not just a neutral thing that is true. It's sinful. It's sinful to think that God is like your parents. Think about it. Have you deified your parents so completely that you can't imagine God being different from them? Your parents are not God. Sorry, Dad. To think that God is like your father or mother is to turn your parents into a false god. That may be a wicked god, because your parents might have been terrible. But to think, to see God through the lens of your parents is to treat them like a god. It's a false god. So let God be God and your parents be humans. God defines himself by himself. It's much better that way, trust me. Even if you're like me and you had wonderful, nearly perfect parents. If you don't know, my dad is sitting right here. <laughs> I've been looking for flaws and just haven't come up with any. I don't. <laughs> what about friends? Everyone has felt the disappointment of a friend that doesn't seem to prioritize the friendship the way we do. Or it's a little lopsided. I give and I give and I give and you just, you don't really give as much back and it hurts me. We've also felt the strange loneliness that can come when you're surrounded by good friends. That's a weird one, isn't it? You finally get some friends in your life and they're good and they're faithful to you and you're sitting there and you're all sitting around having a great time and you have this moment where you feel this twinge inside of emptiness and you go, what's the deal? God gave me what I wanted. Both of those experiences remind us that there is a loneliness that can only be satisfied by being known, and fully known, by God. No one will ever know you the way God knows you. I think another one for me is when you have a wonderful experience by yourself. You know, you go on a trip or something, you experience something amazing. People who go on missions trips always experience this when they come home and you try to relate it to someone else that you care about and you just get frustrated because they're not getting it. You're like, no, but it was amazing. Like, yeah, yeah, it's so cool. I'm so happy for you. Like, no, but it was like really amazing. Like what would have happened? It's like just wow, you know, and they're like, yeah, it's so great. So happy for you. What is that? That's, that's that they can't know. And that, you feel a little lonely in that moment. And the only place where you can get that itch scratched is with God. No matter how well you know somebody. No matter how faithful the friend, no human can be a friend to us like Christ. Placing that kind of expectation on any friend will actually crush the friendship, won't it? You eventually destroy it. Because they're like, look, you're, you're putting a lot on me. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's too much pressure. Instead, let God be God and your friends be human. What about church leaders? Yeah, I have a confession to make. There's a reason why when we have guest speakers planned that I try really hard not to tell you. And the reason for that is is if everybody knows, it is predictable that there will be less people here on that Sunday. 
That doesn't say good things about us, does it? So I, and this, this is not just us. It's every pastor I know. They say, uh, I, got, I got a speaker coming. I want people to come, so I'm not telling anybody. Not a soul. It's going to be a surprise. It doesn't matter who they are. It could be the best speaker you've ever heard in your life. People are like, well, I'll just lay. This is, I'm going to lay out one week. It might as well be this one. I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. I'm just saying it says something, doesn't it? We tend to think that celebrity pastors are only a problem for megachurches, where they project the image of the pastor on a 50-foot-tall screen. We think, well, those are celebrity pastors. No, no, I don't like big churches. Every single church, no matter how big or small, from a house church with five people in it to a megachurch with 30,000, they all have the same temptation, which is to overlay the image of their leaders over the image of Christ and have a hard time distinguishing them. The more we refuse to look at our leaders' clay feet, the more we overlay their image over the image of Christ, clay feet being their weaknesses. It's a funny thing. I joke about it. Like When I say something self-deprecating, trying to say I'm just like everybody else, please don't elevate me on a pedestal, I always have somebody come up and say, you are so humble. <laughs> and I, <"Gah!" laughs> it backfired. Heather, many years ago, once we started pastoring, she would say, you always get credit for the ideas that I have, which is true. Because <laughs> every good thing we, I've ever done in this church has started with her saying, you know what you should do is blah, 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 right? And then I do it and then goes, wow, Ben, you have so much wisdom. I was like, I don't, I don't know. And so one time I, I, I went out of my way, fell over myself, talking about something we did and crediting Heather like endlessly in front of the whole church. And I had somebody walk up to me within seconds and say, you are so great the way you just give Heather credit. What a blessing you are to this congregation. And she's standing there like, come on! I see him at 8 o'clock in the morning. Right? Not really. She's not bitter. We're good for each other. So I'm going on sabbatical in a few weeks. And uh, Mother's Day is actually my last Sunday. Me and Heather both are going. Um, I don't know what my kids are going to do. <clears throat> We're just leaving it up to them. Um, but it's for three months. And I like this because initially I thought, well, this is good. We, we thought about this because we thought it would be good, or our elders thought it would be good for us spiritually and as a family and stuff. And It's a healthy thing. We've been doing this for 16 years. And now I think, yes, it will be good for us, but it's also going to be good for you. Because three months is just long enough to where you can't punt issues for Ben and Heather when they come back. It's just long enough that problems are going to land in your lap you can't just hold. It's like a hot potato. You can't just throw it because there's no one there. You gotta just deal with it, whatever it is. You gotta solve problems in the church yourself, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing because what God's gonna do is He's gonna bless the church so much that I'm gonna feel weird when I come back because I'm gonna be like, well, what what, what did you need me for? And that's the point. 
A good friend last week said to me, you're a puzzle piece. And when the puzzle piece is taken out, it leaves a hole. Yes, but you're just a puzzle piece. And so honor and appreciation is great, and I receive it from you. But I think we need to understand that we, we can't start thinking that this idolatry problem of leadership is just a problem in big churches. Because it's not. So let God be God and your leaders be human. Lastly, probably the one with the most potential for negative emails this week is political leaders. You ever notice that every politician, the, the good ones and the bad ones, however you define good politicians and bad politicians, is up to you. But all of them, get your vote by convincing me that all the practical problems in your life are because of the other guy, the other team, the other party, the other whatever. Look at all these problems you have can't get good health care, you can't get a good job, inflation's out of control, you know, all this stuff. Well, it's that guy's fault. And let me tell you, if you just vote me in, I'll solve all those problems. Here's how I'll solve them. In broad strokes, the details will come later, they never do. But for the purposes of our current conversation, here's what I'll do to solve all these problems. You go, wow, that sounds really great. You're quite convincing as a savior that you're going to save me from all of these problems and fears. Every election cycle, it's the same story, followed by the same disappointments. I think the story of American politics reads a lot like the book of Kings, to be honest with you. It's one of the things that has stood out to me over and over and over again, especially this last section of one king after another, after another, after another, after another. Failing, failing, failing. And the people going, well, I need a king to get to God, don't I? No, you don't. You don't need him. I think when you really see this, you'll have discernment. You'll see political promises as enticements to idolatry. Believe in me. Believe in me as your functional Messiah. You'll see the fear-mongering of conservative and liberal media as the propaganda of the prophets of Baal and not the truth. You won't get too excited or too angry or too worried about any politician's foolishness because you know who your true king is. And you won't suffer from political despair after every election because you let God be God and your politicians be human. As you see clearly what First and Second Kings is trying to show us, that there is no good and true king but Christ. So that's just five examples. I think as I'm given those five, I think you can start to see lots of other ones. Like parents can make idols out of their kids. That's a weird one. Live vicariously. If my children fail, then I fail. If my children sin, then I sin. And then your children sin, and you're faced with your worst nightmare. Which, who am I if my children fail? Pastors, leaders can do this with their churches. Fill in the gaps in my self-image, please. 
I don't feel good about myself today. Could you please give me a compliment? And then you get it and you get prideful. You're so humble. (laughs) I am. I mean, I would never say that to you, but I feel finally someone has noticed my great humility. I'll do more self-deprecation to make you feel more impressed with me. God, isn't that gross? It's like a minefield. Being human is difficult. Maybe that's what we, we just need to admit that. It's hard. Our culture generates these false messiahs constantly, I feel like, just constantly putting somebody up in front of them. We even talk about celebrities. We could talk about that all day long, about where do, I, where do I get inspiration to be a better person? Who do I look to for inspiration? I know, YouTube. I know people who make movies and get paid ridiculous amounts of money or sports heroes or whatever, and I see them and the things they can do and the things they can pull off and, and the way they get paid and the lifestyle they have, and I get inspired. But what about Jesus, right? We can go all through all of these. There's just an infinite number of these things. Constantly telling us, bow down, worship me, I'll solve that problem, I'll save you from that, I'll save you from this. But I want to point out that parents, spouses, friends, church leaders, political leaders, they're all good things. They're God-given things. They're all talked about in the Bible. You should honor your parents. It's right. It's a command from God. Honor your leaders. Live in community with one another. Depend on one another. The presence of Christ is in your Christian friends. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each one of you a living stone put together. Friendship is massively important. Marriage is good. It's good to want to be married. It's good to be happily married. It's good to love your spouse. All those things are good. They're all made by God. They exist as good things in our lives. Idolatry is often a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And it's, I don't think it's actually hard to know when you've crossed that line. Because I think the Holy Spirit is always faithful to tell you, hey, your identity's in that thing too much. And you find out he'll provide wonderful opportunities where someone criticizes you or a friend betrays you or lets you down or your spouse doesn't meet your needs or, or your, your pastor just utterly fails to reply to your very important email. Whatever it is, right? There's always something that God, that God provides you that where, where you're let down, your, expect, your, your God-like expectation of other people gets disappointed, and you say, hold on a minute, where do I go? Because this might happen again. Yes, it will happen again. Where can you go? What king can you bow to and serve that will not do that to you? There's only one, and that's Jesus. Worship is how we dethrone the idols. And it's how we re-enthrone God. I think this is the way forward for us. It's the one thing Israel failed to do over and over again. Is return to God. They failed over and over again to go back to the temple. To worship Yahweh. And so we, we can do this every day. 
You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You all together and you individually, which is a fun thing in the Bible to explore, the yous when he talks about the temple, when they're plural, when they're singular, and it's both. Together, clumped together, put the, pulled together by Jesus Christ, we are the temple and he dwells inside of us, the church. And our job is to constantly keep the idols, the false messiahs out. And it's hard because the world is constantly telling us to enthrone someone else on the throne of the church. And it's always the wrong idea. <laughs> He's also trying to get you to enthrone someone else in your own heart. <clears throat> and the way out of it is not just try to resist other false gods. The real answer is just worship God. Enthrone Christ on the temple of your heart every single day. If you do nothing else in your quiet time with God, do that. Just say, Lord, you are on the throne of my heart. You're at the top, the position of glory, the top place. You're the only one that I worship. I don't worship my wife. I don't worship my kids. I don't worship my church. I don't worship my pastor. I don't worship my president. I don't worship my boss. I worship you and you alone. And if you take away everything from me, I am still who I am. And you are still who you are because you're the only God. And you do that every single day. And something happens in your heart and worship becomes something you do all the time. <laughs> every single day you're putting him back on the throne of your heart. And your fear starts to dissipate. You get more discernment, more insight. You're free to speak your mind and be honest because you're not in chained to another person's idea and opinion of you because you're, you're chained to him. So now you get to tell the truth. You get to be free when people disappoint you and let you down because you're not chained to them, you're chained to Christ. I think this is something we have to do every single day, and we're going to do it now. I'm going to pray. Why don't we stand up? And then we're going to worship together. One more song. Why don't we take a minute just to repent of... I'm hoping the Holy Spirit's convicted you at some point <laughs> of somewhere where you have deified, on some level, deified someone else with an expectation of them to fill a need in you that only God can fill. And so what we do first is just say, God, I'm sorry, that was wrong. What a dumb idea that was. Shouldn't have expected that. And then we, you take your expectations and you don't just toss and say, oh, well, that's not going to get met. You just dump it all on Jesus. He's happy to take it. He's happy to be your perfect friend. He's happy to be your, your perfect spouse. He's happy to be your perfect leader. He's happy. That's who he is, what he loves to do. So it's not that your needs get unmet. It's that they get met in him. So I want to pray for you that you would be able to shift that right now just in faith, and then we're going to worship together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do work in our hearts right now. Uh, would, you, would you highlight um, with the spotlight of your conviction any place in us that is insecure because 
we're not leaning on you. Instead, we're leaning on something that's faulty. God, would you forgive us? God, we know it's foolish to lean on things that are faulty without leaning on you. God, we see our own hesitancy to trust at times because we've been disappointed or bitterness or anger. Would you forgive us? And we confess right now over that that you are our only King, our only Savior, our only Messiah, the only one who will not let us down. And right now we we put you on the throne of our hearts and we say to you, you alone are worthy of our worship. God, I pray that you would bring order underneath that all the other relationships in our lives, that there would be an order that comes underneath the submission to you. That there would be freedom in our relationships with each other, with our kids, with our parents, with our, with our, um, our leaders, bosses, neighbors. God, that there would be an order that comes from this where there's been disorder. God, make us once again into a worshiping people this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.